0: This is Crescent Project Radio, bringing you powerful testimony, practical teaching, and exciting truth about God's miraculous movement in the Muslim world, and how we as Christians can join Him in this kingdom work. Our goal is to see every Muslim have an opportunity to respond to the gospel and be connected to a true follower of Jesus. You can find us online at crescentproject.org. Have a comment or question? Email them to radio at crescentproject.org. We would love to hear from you and have a chance to respond on a future program. Hi, I'm Rashida, and you're listening to Crescent Project
1: Radio, where we believe we have a hope worth sharing. Today, we're going to talk about Islam in the African-American community, which is a very important topic, considering that 20% of the Muslim population in the U.S., is of African descent. A year ago, we touched on this subject when I interviewed two women who grew up in the same Black mosque as I did in the Midwest. In that podcast, we each shared our testimonies of how we came to Christ out of Islam, and you'll find those two episodes in our Crescent Project radio library. Today, our guest is Dr. Carl Ellis, a theologian minister, and author who has a wealth of experience and knowledge to share with us. He serves as provost professor of theology and culture and senior fellow of the African-American Leadership Initiative at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's pastored African-American churches. He's spoken at mosques around the country. He's done prison ministry with prison fellowship And he's seen hundreds of Muslims come to Christ. A few years ago, I read the book that he co authored with Larry Poston, The Changing Face of Islam in America, and learned a lot about the role of Islam in the African American community from it. Carl, I'm really excited about the insights that you're going to share with us today. Welcome to Crescent Project Radio.
2: Good to be with you, Rosita. uh, I'm honored to be here, actually.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad that you're with us. So let's start with your own personal journey. Can you tell us about your own spiritual journey and why Islam and the African-American community is such an important topic for you?
2: Okay, well, like a whole lot of kids, I kind of grew up in the church. I don't think my folks were committed Christians. They were kind of nominal Christians, you know. But I just happen to be one of these people that just doesn't like church. I, I did, in my natural state, uh, I did not like the culture of the church. I mm-hmm. I have come to call myself an unchurchable. I was allergic to church as we did it, but I wasn't allergic to God. You know, I I always wanted to know God, and uh, but pe- but I didn't understand church language. People would give me all these phrases about accept Christ as your personal savior, but I had no idea what that meant. I just knew that I was in trouble with God. I wanted to get to know Him. And uh, mm-hmm. long story short, I got out of the church as soon as I could, and I began to explore other things. And then I think the, the real turning point in my life is when I heard Malcolm X live. I was really, really uh, riveted, uh, electrified by what Malcolm had to say. And, and all along, this, the, the culture around me, you know, you've heard the term microaggressions, mm-hmm. you know, they, a lot of people talk about that. You're surrounded by these little subliminal messages that you're irregular, you know, things like, you know, you go to the, gr- the the drugstore to get a Band-Aid and it says flesh color and you know it's not flesh color and things like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so it, it had kind of done a number on me. I was kind of sensitive. So when Christians would come up to me and try to get me to, you know, to believe, they first start out, out telling me that what a terrible sinner I am. Well, I already knew that. I didn't want to hear that. So I shunned Christians a lot. But Malcolm came along and said, you've got dignity, you've got worth, you're noble, you're beautiful, and, and that attracted me. I said, well, this is the message I need to hear. But then I found out that when I tried to be that way, I fell short. I couldn't ever live up to it. And then some other non-churchable friends of mine who have become Christians came along and explained to me that the reason for that is because I fall short of the glory of God because of sin. You know, Romans three twenty three. Right. That made all the difference in the world. And uh, so for the first time, I understood sin. So, uh, I of course, I wrestled with God for a couple of months, but I eventually surrendered to him. And it made all the difference. And it's a crazy, crazy thing, because once I got saved, I went right to my church, and I was ready to jump in with both feet. I told my pastor that God had saved me, and he kicked me out of the church. So, <laughs>
1: <Really>? <laughs> so that
2: was a—oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he— You know, to his defense, he probably thought I was in a cult or something. And uh, he said, well, whatever this is you're into, I won't have it around my church. Well, I didn't like going to church anyway, so I never went back. And I stayed. uh, I never set foot in another church for five years, but the guys who led me to Christ discipled me, you see. Mm. And we would just study the Bible. We'd go right out to the street, and we would share our faith. Uh, We didn't speak it through church language or anything. We did a direct application and, and, you know, we, we would run into people in the nation of Islam. We weren't intimidated because they were just like anybody else, you know. So we, w- in our conversations with them, we re- we really discovered that so many of them had grown up in the church and they left the church. And what they found in Islam was what the Bible, you know, let's put it this way. What they rejected in the church was where the church was was unbiblical. What attracted them in Islam was where Islam... Was closer to a biblical thing, you know what I'm saying. So mm-hmm. uh, that was really an eye opener. And then over the years, um, I, I really thought I had a thing about Muslims, and I do to to a great extent. But I really have a thing about unchurchables. These are people who are just totally neglected by mis- ministries. You know, most you know a lot of churches they go for other church people. You know, transfer growth. There are mm-hmm. some who are re- great visionaries. They go for the unchurched. But hardly anybody is going for the unchurchables—people who are allergic to church as we know it. So, so anyway, those are those are my people, and uh, of course, a lot of Muslim converts are into that because a lot of unchurchable people who go to Islam, who convert to Islam, are really, you know, they 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 see, they think they see more of what they want, what they are looking for, as a relationship with God. Than they do in the church, but of course, you know, in Islam, you don't have a personal relationship with God. You know, he's just, he's just aloof. Uh, he just reveals his will, but not his person. So these are the the guys that I find you know, who do do that were unchurchables who were hungry for God. That's what I'm saying, and uh, it was just quite a quite an eye opener. So I found my I find myself really dealing with a lot of people like that, and I I call them my people. You know, so. That's, that's, that's kind of how it happened.
1: Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So to really understand this topic, um, we've got to do a, a little bit of a history lesson, um, talking about the changes that took place in the Black church and, and the rise of Islam and, and Black nationalist groups in the African-American community. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening in the African-American church in the 20th century, and what needs were these new religious groups addressing to make them attractive?
2: Right. Right. Well, if you look at the history of the scripture, you will find that uh, the people of God, you know, there's the people of God, the community of those who keep the covenant, okay? That's what I would call the movement. There's always been a movement of the people of God. But then there's also been the institution. The institution are the organizations that associate themselves with the people of God. Mm-hmm. and uh, you got two different realities and uh, generally the the movement and the and the institution are, are are at odds okay and what has happened over the years is that what happens is that the institution kind of takes over and kills the movement and time and time again god would pull the movement out and start over and uh i think in a very real sense in the early days uh in american history the, the Christianity, quote-unquote, that, that came over with, with the colonists had already fallen into cultural captivity to Anglo-Saxon culture or whatever. And as such, there was no room for people who were outside of that. So when slaves started coming over, what began to happen is that, it, you know, this there, there's a story that Christianity was uh, given to the slaves to keep them down or something to that effect. Well, actually, if you really look at, look at the history, slave masters did not want their their slaves to be Christians at all because too many dangerous ideas in Christianity. Right. But in spite of that, slaves began to pick up on things. As a matter of fact, if you read the slave narratives, you see um, many accounts where slaves were just they were out in the middle of the field and Jesus would appear to them, that kind of thing. And yeah. so what happened is that the church, the American church that was captive to Anglo-Saxon slash white culture, there was no room for African-Americans in that. So the early African-American church, it was actually a movement of God, you know what I'm saying? But, but over the years, like, like with anything else, uh, it also became institutionalized. So we come to the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. By the beginning of the 20th century, 90% of African-Americans lived in the South. Now, in the South, there developed a theology of suffering. You know, you can hear this in traditional churches today. Uh, it was a theology of suffering, you know. But in the northern church, where th- where people, you know, where slavery died out as an institution, you had more of a theology of uh, empowerment. So you, in both of these cases, the general in the south was a the theology of suffering; in the north, a the theology of empowerment. Now, both of these theologies, shall I say, carried the biblical message of salvation. They both did, but it was the way in which they, it was the themes that they were presented in, mm-hmm. and. uh and so you developed a kind of a northern theology and a southern theology the northern theology was oriented toward reaching people in in what they would call the 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 african diaspora it was more of a an exilic outlook you know as if they were you know they were part of the africans in exile so they wanted to reach out and they, out of out of that came a lot of missions activity but in the south they were trying to survive and so they were more into an exodus thing you know um when we cross the river Jordan, you know, we got to come out of Egypt. That kind of thing. And so, so you basically had two theologies. Okay, the the southern theology was very intuitive. The northern theology was uh, was cognitive. Okay, different ways of doing mm-hmm. things. All right. So that being said, as as the twentieth century dawned, then there was a great migration, and a lot of southerners came to the north, and of course. Uh, like I said, 90% of blacks lived in the South uh, as late as 1910, but you have this huge migration coming up, and eventually blacks in the North who had Southern roots outnumbered blacks in the North who were indigenous to the North. And of course, when they came to the North, they brought their theology and their church types with them. Mm-hmm. And so in the North, then the younger generations then had access to formal education, which they didn't have in the South, Right. And formal education develops you cognitively, not intuitively. And so the southern type churches in the north were still doing their theology on the on the intuitive side. So the young people were coming up. They were cognitively oriented and they, they had questions. They, they had what I would really. call cognitive theological needs. Mm-hmm. And the church was not addressing them. Then as the twentieth century dawns then, you begin to see the emergence of of, of other You know, of cults and other religions, you know, like, for example, uh, the Morris Temple of Science starts in 1913. You have Marcus Garvey, uh, the United Negro Improvement Association and others, a a whole host of black Jewish uh, sects that popped up. And they were trying to appeal to African-Americans in terms of the cognitive. Okay, Some of their doctrines were kind of wacky, but on the other hand, it was cognitive, you know. I think the other thing, too, is that over the years, African-Americans kind of had this what I call uh, cultural core concerns. These are life controlling and life defining values and issues. Okay, Mm -hmm. And so generally within the African-American context, because we were oppressed and negated, you know what I'm saying? We were surrounded by a culture that was that denied who we were. We developed cultural core concerns related to uh, empowerment, as it were, dignity, identity, and significance. Those are three important things that the African-American theology, especially in the North, addressed. And, of course, you know, the white church wasn't addressing that. So what happened was that when the southerners came north and the church wasn't addressing those kind of concerns a lot of people jumped off into these other religions because they were trying to address dignity, identity, and significance. If you look at their doctrines, you see that that was the undergirding theme there. That's what they were trying to address. And so, you know, the Bible addresses these things beautifully, but we in the church have not been good stewards of the Bible. We have not applied Scripture to answering people's questions and concerns, as the Scripture itself tells us to. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so yes, all these different groups started to emerge, and probably one of the most famous is the Nation of Islam. Nation of Islam, right. Many people know that name, but they may not really understand what the Nation of Islam is and, and how it differs from Orthodox Islam. Can you talk a little bit about okay. the beliefs and practices of the Nation of Islam? Right.
2: The Nation of Islam is to Islam what Jehovah's witnesses is to christianity okay if, if I could use that analogy, okay, of course, in Islam, you know Allah has nothing to do you know he is not a man or anything like, like that, but in uh, the Nation of Islam, Allah came in the person of W. D. Fard who taught Elijah Muhammad that the white man is the devil. The interesting thing is that W. D. fard himself was white now i've I've heard People try to explain that and say, "Well, he was a black man who came in disguise and all that." But I, I know I got his rap sheet. I got his. I got his information. You know, <laughs> and he was white, so that's that's kind of ironic. And he's regarded as Allah in the flesh. All right. Well, that is that is about as anti-Islamic as you can get. But it had a, an Islamic theme, and they were they would say they would point to Christianity and say Christianity is a white man's religion, and well, it it kind of looked like that. It, 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 Christianity is not the white man's religion, but the way it was practiced in America, it kind of looked like that, you know? Right. And so they would say, well, we have we, we can give you your true identity we can tell you about dignity, and we can tell you about your significance, you know, that uh, that you come from the great, uh, you know, there was this race of people that uh, lived on the moon, the moon exploded, and they came to earth, and they were the true people and, and, and white folks are the result of Crude genetic engineering, and you know all those kind of things. It, it explains, it explains the the behavior, the the racist behavior on the part of white America. So, how can I say the the Nation of Islam came along and gave a at least an explanation as to why you know why there's racism and all the rest of that. It's kind of like if I can put it this way, the analogy I like to use is that. If if you didn't know what caused tornadoes, and I came along and told you, oh, it's trailer parks that cause tornadoes, <laughs> because, because every time you see where a tornado was, they show you a trailer park that was devastated. So the trailer park causes tornadoes. It's kind of like, if you want to know the fallacy is correlation equals cause and effect. So, and so you say the white man's the devil, it, it answers the question, you know, why do white folks act like that? So you know it—it it makes some sense in a sense, even though it's, it's a terrible answer. You know, like trail of rocks, tornadoes—that's, you well, know, that, that that does answer the question, and, and you see evidence of that, but it's not true. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does.
2: And so, the Nation of Islam—they um, emphasize dignity, identity, and significance, which is which are legitimate biblical concerns, and the Bible addresses those, but the church didn't address them. So, so two things: one, because they were cognitive. And two, they were actually addressing what I would call cultural core concerns, and so. Um,
1: and what? How does the Nation of Islam view the Quran? What is their relationship they say to that,
2: the Quran? Yeah, they they say that the Quran is the word of Allah and all the rest of that. But of course, of course, W.D. Fard is a higher revelation. You know, he is the the true one, right, rather than Muhammad of the Quraysh tribe. That's gotcha. um, true. So the they. Uh, Right, right, right. So, message to the black man, you know, those kind of things. So it's kind of like a uh, well, like I said, it's it's an Islamic cult actually when you look at it. But mm-hmm. it, it, what they did, they concentrated on answering the questions, which which the people in the church having having the source of the answers to the questions. We didn't, we weren't good stewards of it. We didn't apply. We we were like the unjust steward who hid his talent in the ground, didn't do anything with it. That's kind of what happened.
1: Mm -hmm. And so how did Orthodox Islam make its way into the black community?
2: Okay. Well, what happens was the typical scenario is this young man he grows up in the church. He's unchurchable. So he leaves the church and he's looking for a connection with God. Here's the message of the nation of Islam. He gets into it. But after a while he begins to realize that it's based on a whole lot of fairy tales and myths and things like that. But but he says, I want to get the real thing. I want to get the real Islam. And so they typically they would say, be in the nation for three to five years. They're out on the corner selling, you know, the uh, Muhammad speaks or the, the final call. And he realizes there's no older guys doing this, you know, what's up? And so eventually they would Go on into orthodox Islam because they think that the answer is in Islam, but the Nation of Islam is not the real deal. So they're going to go to a more authentic. They, they kind of follow the path of uh, Malcolm. You know, Malcolm saw the holes in the na- in the doctrine of the Nation of Islam. And then he went. And then he went orthodox. And so that's kind of generally what happens. So is so the Nation of Islam becomes the gateway, okay, for for a lot people it becomes mm-hmm. a gateway drug as it were to orthodox islam yes yeah i i tell you what you know i run into a whole lot of young men who are at that point where they're starting to see that the nation of islam they're starting to become disillusioned with the nation of islam and i i really ask them i say well what are you searching for what is what's in your heart what are you longing for and they share it with me and i share what the Bible says, and so many of them, so many of them say to me, "I, I became a Muslim because I was looking for what you just told me." Mm-hmm. So they take a different path, you know. But they're, but they're really trying to address dignity, identity, and significance.
1: Yes, and so let's talk some more about why Black people are converting to Islam today, and what are some of the common characteristics that you've observed of those people you've talked about that they're searching for significance and identity, dignity, and that they're unchurchable. Are there any other things that people should know who are reaching out to African-American Muslims about um, what are their core issues or felt needs?
2: Well, one of the things, you know, there's so many of these guys I talk to and I say, you know, because they they grew up Baptist or whatever. And I say, well, why did you leave uh, the church? and i can't count the number of times when i've heard them say something like this the church is too female and i'm talking about men okay and when again when you look when you look at the church in the institutional church what do you see you see an alpha male who is the pastor you know and then you have you know everything else is women
1: and we're talking about the african american church
2: right 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 and what I hear is a the complaint. They say, "Well, the church is too black male unfriendly. Unless you're the pastor, you're not really welcome there as a male." I'm, I, this isn't every church, of course. This is, but there's too many of them that are like this. And so, and, and even in, in in some of the songs we sing, you know, like, um, like he's sweet, I know. I mean, you know, okay, I I understand what that means. He's sweet, I know. <laughs> but as a man to sing that, that's a little. Uh, you know, I could, I could, if I look at it slightly different, it means something entirely different. And there is this sense of, it's like, you know, like, for example, a misinterpretation of the turn-the-other-cheek teaching of Jesus. Jesus, when he said turn-the-other-cheek, he wasn't talking about the lack of self-defense. He was talking about vengeance. You know, I will turn the other cheek in terms of vengeance any day. But if somebody's going to, going to attack my wife and my family, I'm going to defend them. You know what I'm saying? I'll even defend myself. I don't want to take revenge on anybody, but certainly I have every right to uh, protect myself and that kind of thing. But a lot of people interpret it as being, we got to be, we. in other words, they interpret it as if to say, what we have to do to be a good Christian is to be a punk. And that just mm-hmm. doesn't go over too well. I understand, you know, I I understand what's happening. I I love the oh by the way I love the folks of the church. Uh, I am unchurchable in my natural state, but God has given me special software to allow me to to function within the church context. So I you know I I've I've it you know and all the rest of that. So I'm a Macintosh who can run Windows. Okay. Okay. <laughs> But in my natural state, my ability to function in the church is a gift from God. But in my natural state, I'm not there. So I love the church. I I really love the church. I love the people of the church and all that. But I'm honest because I know, you know, I try to be honest about it. And when I pastored, I told them, I say, hey, these are the things that people are saying. Let's not be that. You know, let's be radically biblical. So those are some of the issues. Uh, they're looking for a lot of guys are looking for you know an affirmation of their masculinity and and from that point of view you know in most churches that I go to there is a feminine orientation to the church and it's just not like I say it's not male friendly that male it doesn't appear to be male friendly uh, which is
1: interesting because it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy if the men don't get involved in the church and the black absolutely. church we're talking about.
2: <laughs> absolutely. 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 What I have done, to be very honest, you know, in my last pastorate, I actually had two congregations. <laughs> I had the congregation of the institution that I was pastoring, and then I had this congregation of these, these guys out here who were mm-hmm. unchurchable, but who I was discipling. Does that make sense? And, uh, and I could not, if I brought them to church, they would they would freak out, you know. Hmm. but but they had a hunger for God and they were learning the things of God and all that. So I encourage pastors to do that until such a time as the, this outside church or, you know, you know, you know how some guys have outside families, you know, I had an outside family. So the outside church, until they mature enough, they're able to recognize mm-hmm. that we do have people who are actually in the body of Christ or in the church. Does that make sense? Right. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, right. So if you're, if you're a non-institutional church you you got to tend to think everybody in the institution is is lost no that's not true you got good people in the institution like mm-hmm. in the first century you had uh you had Gamaliel who was part of the Sanhedrin you know what i'm saying and yet still, when they were, when, when they wanted to kill John and and those guys they said oh no no don't do that he said don't do that this might be of god you know you don't want to he was mature enough to recognize that god might be doing something new and so we do have people like that. And th- those are the people who make up the body of Christ. It's yeah. just people like that, you know, on both sides.
1: Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up part one of our conversation. And I'm just going to close this out in a word of prayer. Okay. Lord God, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the journey that carl has been on in his own life personally but also all the things that you've shown him about the felt needs of so many um people in the african american community and and even you know these issues are becoming issues of of generation z of of many young people actually who have grown up in the church to even today And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to give the church wisdom, um, your people wisdom about how to uh, share the gospel in a way that makes sense to people and that addresses their felt needs. And Lord, I just pray that for change and for um, reformation and just for, Lord, we just pray for harvest. We pray that many people who are lost, who are searching for truth, Lord, that they would they would seek you and they would find you, Lord God, and that they would also be connected to people who love you, who can disciple them. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Crescent Project Radio. We believe we have a hope worth sharing. Learn more about Crescent Project online at crescentproject.org where you can find all of our previous podcasts featuring testimonies from former Muslims, teaching and apologetics, interviews with ministry leaders and book authors, along with commentary on current events and ministry news. Email us your comments or questions to radio at crescentproject.org. Stay connected by subscribing to our bi-monthly email, Call to Prayer, which is focused on prayer for the Muslim world. We hope you'll join us again next time on Crescent Project Radio.